We Made This. Hello everyone, this is Tony, Network Chief of We Made This. As you know, our podcast network brings together a brilliant assortment of talent who talk about all kinds of pop culture content, such as the episode you've just listened to, or maybe you're just about to listen to. We're not going anywhere, but we'd love to keep the lights on for even longer if you're able to support our network on Patreon. For just £2 a month, you get your name in lights and the satisfaction of knowing you're helping us produce more great audio. And for £3 a month, you'll get your name in lights, but you'll also get access to an exclusive bi-monthly podcast from the We Made This Talent Pool on podcasting, pop culture, and, well, you tell us. We'll take your suggestions. For less than the price of a coffee per month, you can help keep We Made This going. Just head to patreon.com forward slash we made this, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash we made this and get the ball rolling. Now, back to your scheduled programming. about the sounds of cinema and discussion about them between the notes, which is where we come in. I'm Tony Black, and my co-host is Sean Wilson, and normally we both appear at the top of this episode, looking back at the film music year of 2020, but in recording this episode, we quickly realised we had two hours of material that would make a better two-part than one-part episode. So, we split it in half. We invite you, if you're just tuning in, to head back to our last episode and hear our selections from ten down to six, and then rejoin us here as we count down from five to one of our best scores of 2020. So you ready? Then let's dive right back in. Let's get on to the big five then. So what are you going for for halfway through your number five out of ten? So uh, I've gone for Parasite uh, by Jung Jae-il. Uh, ah. There we go. So uh, <laughs> Parasite needs little introduction, right? As, as as a film at least, it bears very little. It's one of the very, very few films that actually managed to get out in the UK before everything went to hell in, hell in a handcart last year. Um, and thank goodness for that, because if we'd been deprived of Parasite, 2020 would have been even worse, I think, than, than, than what it was culturally and just thankful that we got this back in um february we got it much later than than most other countries but it obviously went on to win the several historic first for south korea at the oscars including best picture it's an extraordinary film and it is it was my favorite film of of last year i included it as a uk release because my general rule of thumb is if you're doing a compilation of best films or best film scores as long as it's released between the 1st of January and the 31st of December that year. As far as I'm concerned, it's fair game. That's the way that I do it in, in that country. 1st of January and 31st of December in the UK. That, as far as I'm concerned, that makes it relevant. Um, and the, the Parasite was an extraordinary social satire that mixes very, very mordant humour with horror and this burgeoning, um, very, very biting awareness of the idea of... Um, the idea of a social underclass upon whom everyone else feeds but the social underclass are themselves no angels they are um sort of atavistic as well and they are scheming and you have this awful cycle of people on both sides of the social divide feeding off each other which sustains that's what basically sustains society that's what keeps everything going and it's incredibly lacerating look at the state of human affairs in the in the modern world and obviously that that those feelings have only accentuated since parasite came out with with coronavirus um it's a really extraordinary bon, the director bong jin ho is, is a is a really astonishing filmmaker and he we made films like snowpiercer which we've referred to before um and jung jae il's score 
is a really lovely kind of very state almost like a stately classical score that treats it treats the drama almost as this kind of unfolding operatic symphony and it's lovely to see that Bong Joon-ho is able to use kind of an emphatic musical score a very classically emphatic musical score to basically amp up the satire of of the movie as as we're watching the film in combination with the music things only seem more and more absurd they seem more grandiose and I think it's a really really good there's uh, the um this the sequence <laughs> leading up to I forget the name of the track I think it's called like the, the belt of faith or, or something I might be mis- misremembering that leading up to the um them the, the the invasive lower class family getting the upper class family's um housekeeper booted out by basically suggesting that she's caught um I think it's TB in the in the film and the music throughout that sequence is just amazing is it's, yeah, it's a sublime score for for a sublime film, I think. I need to go back and listen to it, to be honest, because I didn't get chance. And I thought the film was fantastic. I agree, absolutely. It's up there, you know, for me, uh, for, for the for the year. And yeah, I loved it. I'm looking forward to seeing it again, actually. Are you, you going to watch it in black and white? Because they've, they've released one, haven't they, that, uh, that does it like that. That could be interesting. Yeah, I, I, I am I am genuinely interested. Actually, no, no I, did, I did watch the black and white cut. Yeah, I did. I watched it during lockdown. And it, it's fascinating because I think that one of the, one of the, the film compositionally is really, really good. The film uses colour and depth of field brilliantly. And it's funny, watching it in black and white, you kind of think, okay, that almost emphasises the irony of the story in as much as in the story, nothing is in black and white. So it, it almost goes inverse with the colour palette. But I did think the black and white actually diminished a lot of the nuances in the design. I mean, it was, it was I don't think... I'm not sure if Bong Joon-ho shot it with an aim to be in black and white. I don't know if that's the case because often if you are going to shoot a film in black and white, the considerations for that need to be taken in advance in terms of how you're going to design the sets, how you're going to light the thing. So, yeah, it was an interesting experiment in black and white. I personally preferred it in colour. I think that that was better for me. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be, I'd be interested to watch that. I might, I might well do it, actually, um, and just see the comparison. But, yeah, I... I will go back and listen to the score again because I, I don't remember a vast amount of it, but it's been nearly a year since I watched the film. But yeah, you've got me really interested in that. So yeah, I mean, yeah, Parasite's just fab. Just if you haven't seen it, just check it out. It's brilliant. So for my number five, I'm going into television and I've gone for the third season of Westworld by Ramin Djawadi. And this came out last March. Uh, and, and it's kind of Djawadi's big number now after the end of game of thrones in 2019 which is obviously i think going to stand as one of his most famous sort of things um throughout his career really depending on what he does next but he's he's done and westworld hasn't quite i think reached the same amount of plaudits for the for the music as game of thrones did amongst people who enjoyed it but and to be fair the third season of westworld really 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 did <laughs> it was really hammered by a lot of people actually um, although I did enjoy it, uh, it's it's not the best season of the show. But because because what what he does in this is he, he he he's the show moves away from the western setting. It's barely it's barely in in West World anymore. It's it's set in the the, the mid twenty first century, sort of out of the the park where the robots are now starting the the you know the the synthetic whatever they're called hosts are now starting to sort of spill out into the real world and it's causing all kinds of problems. And, and and I mean I I do think Westworld is one of these shows that's that's a bit misunderstood actually because I think it it gets a it gets a bad rap for the fact that it's actually trying to do some really fascinating things and maybe when it's all said and done when people can look at the whole tapestry of the show I think it might be better thought of to be honest because I think it's always been a little bit misjudged really but I think the music the music's always really good. I think he's Joadi was excellent in Game of Thrones, I think, at finding motifs for so many of the characters. And he does a similar thing in Westworld, and he manages to find a lot of these recurring sort of motifs going through it. And he does that whole thing that he that Westworld's sort of become a little bit of a trademark in that he takes he orchestrally covers certain, you know, well known tunes. So this season we get Guns N' Roses, Sweet Child of Mine, we get Wicked Games by the weekend, which I thought was the, the standout for me in the in those covers, which is which is great. Uh, a version of Brain Damage from Pink Floyd's The Dark Side of the Moon. So there's, there's a real range of things that I think he's really interesting. One of the interesting things he does about with Westworld, 
but it's he, I, I think season two remains the 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 score that I, of his that I love the most from Westworld. I think there's some really grand sweeping stuff in there that he doesn't normally do. And he didn't... Season 3 didn't fit that in the same way because it was a different kind of year for the show. But, yeah, I really like it. And I, I, th- I think I think it deserves... I think his music in general deserves a little bit more appreciation, actually, because I think he's better than a lot of people say he is. Yeah, I, I mean, Ramin Javadi... I mean, his magnum opus will clearly be Game of Thrones... As far as I'm concerned, I haven't seen or heard Westworld, so I can't really comment on on that necessarily. Uh, but he, he Roman Javadi has done a lot of scores I've not been a particular fan of. He's done some good scores. He did like Pacific Rim, the first Pacific Rim movie, which which was good fun. But I, I can't say as I'm familiar with Westworld, I've heard mixed things about the show itself. But I I would imagine that kind of gets under the skin of that obviously the whole idea of human versus robot right i imagine that that underpins yeah. a lot of the music completely yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely there's, there's this sort of combination of synthetic sound human emotion strings and yeah because the whole show is all about really what is you know what 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 what, is, what does it yeah what does it mean to be human what is it what is the difference you know there's, there's a, a line because the whole thing is the host's appear human in so many ways and there's a line i think early on where somebody says if you can't tell does it matter you know and so that that's sort of like with the whole underpinning thing of the show and it's there's a lot going on in there i mean it's a real mixture but i think he does it really well i think he scores it really well and it's uh it's coming back for a season four i don't know how many fans are coming back frankly (laughs) at this stage it's really unlike game of thrones westworld is a bit too esoteric and weird Really, I mean that—that that was the thing about Game of Thrones. It, it, and I think why again that is underrated and misjudged because they managed to take something which is completely like out there fantasy in the books, and they they made it accessible for audiences who then kept coming back and they found things in there that and in, intentionally they dialed down a lot of the fantasy elements until much later in the show when they'd earned the right to throw all the dragons in there and all the you know White Walkers and all this. They didn't do a lot of that in the early days, and it kept people in. Whereas Westworld very quickly went into some really esoteric, weird shit. Like, and, and so I, th- I think a bit like Lost. Lost had exactly the same problem. You know, even though the score to Lost is a ma- masterpiece from beginning to end. Not, not many people have probably heard the last few seasons of gl- glorious Michael Giacchino music for that show. Because they weren't watching it. And because it gets all into time traveling islands and it's just bonkers. Like, so Westworld is going a little bit like that in a way. So it's a shame because there's some good stuff in there. So I would encourage anyone to go and go and check it out. Definitely. Let's move on then. Number four. What have you gone for? So this <laughs> what is, have you gone uh, for? What have gone for? Uh, nice, nice. There we there go. We what go. I'm for? In for four, I've for. gone for yeah, here we are. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I've I've gone for um, Enola Holmes by uh, Daniel Pemberton. So this was another Netflix movie, and I have to say, I thought a rather good Netflix movie. Actually, uh, the idea is that you it's it's a, it's, it's nominally a Sherlock Holmes um, story, but he is not the centre of it. it. It kind of inverts the canon, uh, tweaks it somewhat to focus on uh, Sherlock Holmes's sister, uh, Enola Holmes, played by Millie Bobby Brown from uh, Stranger Things, and she is on a uh, quest to go and uh, search for her, her mother, who, who disappeared, and this takes her into, into Victorian London. There's, there's a sort of web of intrigue uh, opens up, and she meets up with this young guy, played by Louis Partridge, who helps her, and then on, on the sidelines you have uh, Holmes, um, uh, played by uh, Henry Cavill, and it's yeah it's 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 a, it's an interesting i think i think it's actually um it's 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 an interesting film i i was when i went into it i was a bit kind i was a bit cautious because i kind of thought okay have they literally tried to just woke this up for the sake of woking it up and i thought it looked a bit cringy from the outside of it much as i'm much as you know obviously as i said when when talking about laura cartman clearly the the notion of um, gender parity and gender representation is is clearly starting to filter down through the conversation now, albeit probably far too slowly. But I wasn't sure about the film, and I I thought it was really really good. I thought it captured the period really well. I thought Millie Bobby Brown's performance was was really good, and crucially, the score is lovely. Uh, Daniel Pemberton's score is really really nice because. It is exactly what it's supposed to be. It's a score of themes. It's a score of clear, buoyant, 
sunny identities, which is exactly what you want, because that is what Millie Bobby Brown brings to the role. And clearly one doesn't have to look very hard to see that Daniel Pemberton is feeding off that exuberance. The fact that she is a detective in the making, but she's a nascent detective. She's kind of like raw and rough around the edges. And Holmes is clearly the, the more the, the sophisticated, sophisticated one. But she, one assumes that she's going to come into her own like that, presumably over the course of several more movies. But it's that identity that underpins the really kind of bouncy, uh, lovely main theme. And that warmth continues all the way through the score. And I think it's it's a classic old school adventure score. I mean, Sherlock Holmes has had, there's been some extraordinary music written for Sherlock Holmes movies. I mean, pretty much every Sherlock Holmes movie, I think, has had some kind of remarkable score attached to it. I mean, my favourite being uh, Young Sherlock Holmes by Bruce Brighton from 1985, which I think is just a masterpiece. And we've talked about that um, before on, on on an episode, I think about, was that 1980s um, adventure scores? Oh, we, talk, yeah. we talked about that. I think so. Mm. That was that was a lockdown episode we did last year, wasn't it? But then obviously, and then we've got David David Arnold and Michael Price for for the TV series Sherlock, the Benedict Cumberbatch, Martin Freeman series. So Sherlock Holmes has been treated to many many different musical iterations, but it's nice that we now have a kind of adjunct to that, the the Enola Holmes adjunct to it, which is now being graced with its own really optimistic you know, buoyant uh, soundtrack. And Daniel Pemberton's a really interesting composer. He's, he's done, I loved his score for The Man From Uncle. I thought that was really, had a really lovely 1960s Euro Mediterranean chic to it. I really liked what he did for Steve Jobs, uh, the Danny Boyle movie where it went from kind of 80s, sort of 80s, um, slightly blobby synth sounds into a more sophisticated electro orchestral sound i think he's a really interesting composer and really diverse you don't quite know what he's gonna come up with from project to project but i think in this instance it was kind of like no i'm gonna leave the experimentalism to one side and just get straight to the heart of the movie with the symphony orchestra and i thought that was exactly the right thing to do yeah yeah, yeah. I, I agree i think he's, he's had an interesting he's had a busy year i think i think he, the, another one he did was birds of prey earlier in the year which uh was different to this different kind of thing so he's he's been busy he's, he's always seems to be quite busy you know he, and he does he really can turn on various different styles and things like that which is really good i i, I thought this was a really nice score i i do agree i didn't really love the film particularly i i i struggled with the film i thought it was just a bit yeah i was i wasn't really into it <laughs> bit, to bit, be bit naff bit bit naff maybe yeah <laughs> yeah a little bit and and i, I it wasn't it wasn't really for me personally but I did like the music, and I, I that was what I said to my wife. I came out of it. I said the score to that's great, but you know I'm not going to watch the film again. But I'll listen, <laughs> I'll listen to the score. <laughs> yeah, you know. But you know, um, different strokes and all that. But we definitely, it's it's a really nice, it's a really nice piece of music. Yeah. So for my number four, I've gone for another one I haven't seen. Uh, the last one I haven't seen, to be fair, which is the rhythm section. Um, the, a film by Reed Morano, starring uh, Blake Lively, Jude Law, Sterling K. Brown about a grieving woman who sets out for revenge after discovering the plane crash that killed her family was a terrorist attack. Now, this has a score by a composer called Steve Mazzaro, who is somebody I'm not massively familiar with at all. And the film was a bit of a mixed bag, I think. I think it was, from what people have said, it was a bit all over the place, even though Black Lively's quite good in it. But I thought the score was was great. I thought the score was really... there was There's a lot of, a lot of like... I haven't listened to this and I haven't seen the film either. Is it kind of like John Barry? Is it going for that or is it going for something more modern? More modern it's than that? It's going for... I wouldn't say it's John Barry. I'd say it's going for something along the lines of really scoring the emotion of the whole thing. And I, I can't... I, I'm struggling off the top of my head to think of, of a comparison to this. It's not got that sort of beauty and sweep of Barry or that kind of thing, but it does have a sort of classical intensity to it and 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 i i i can't quite pin down who i who i'd compare this to it's not a born score then is it? it's not it's not no. as kind of gritty as that like john Powell. no because the film you'd think the it would be because the film is black lively and sort of full-on sort of action mode you know the film's been sort of likened to things like you know atomic blonde and that kind of stuff you know red sparrow and it's produced by Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson from the Bond films. So you'd think it was... So there's, there's definitely going to be some action in this. But it's not it, It's not approached in those terms. It's approached... It, there's, there's a lot of, like, strings in there. It's really quite beautiful stuff. But it's also really quite intense and sad. 
and I, I, it was, it was really surprising to me. I really was quite taken aback with how gorgeous it was and how evocative. So I, I again, we'll put some. Uh, there, was, there was some additional music by um, Lisa Gerrard, Hans Zimmer produced it as well, but it doesn't have that bombast or anything like that. We'll put some in the. Um, in the playlist for people to listen to, but I'd encourage anyone to check this out. It's made me want to see the film actually, even though the film's supposed to be a bit. Eh. Um, <laughs> I really want to see it now because I actually think, I actually think the score was terrific. So yeah, I'm looking forward to catching the movie, um, and maybe once I've seen the movie, I can articulate what it is about this I like so much because I'm I'm almost struggling in a way. It just arrested me a little bit, which is a nice feeling to have actually. You know, when you when you listen to something, you go, "Blimey, this is good," and you can't almost pin down why. You know, that's quite nice. Yeah. Number three. What have you gone for, Sean? So we've, we've got another Netflix uh, series and accompanying score, uh, The Queen's Gambit by Carlos Rafael Rivera. Um, did you yep. watch this over uh, Christmas? Did you see it? Well, funnily enough, I had... Uh, at the start of last week, I had two days where I was working from home before I was going into a whole new job. And because I thought I was going to be working from home a lot more than I am, I thought... Do you know what? I'm going to watch The Queen's Gambit in one day. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I did. Yeah. I watched all seven episodes of The Queen's Gambit in one morning and afternoon. So yes, I have seen it. And it's sublime, isn't it? It's, it's a really, really good. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm saying that. I'm assuming. Did you think that as well? Like... I no. I, I, I thought it was impressive. <laughs> Sorry. I thought, right. it, I thought it was. In, I thought it was impressive. I thought Anya Taylor Joy was great in the main role. I thought it looked really good. The score, as I'm sure you'll talk about, I thought was really good. Um, but I found it, it wasn't quite my cup of tea in terms of story and, and, and that kind of thing. And I think it was a bit overlong, but I don't want to take the wind out yourself. You <laughs> <Yeah. loved it. laughs> no, no. I, I, I really liked it. It's, it's adapt it's um, adapted from the Walter Tevers novel of the same name by Scott Frank, who's the showrunner, the Netflix showrunner in this instance, Scott Frank was the writer of, uh, among other things, uh, out of sight and minority reports, a really, really good screenwriter. And I didn't know anything about this. So I knew Anya Taylor-Joy was in it. I knew it was about chess. I really don't give two hoots about chess. Never played it. Never will play it. It's not really about but, chess, is it? It's one of those no, things it's, it's that not, it's about and, chess, but it's not about chess. <laughs> that, and you just nailed exactly what it is that works for me about the thing. It's it's kind of, it's about a chess player, Beth Harmon, played by Anya Taylor-Joy. But it's more about her inner struggle and how that's manifested on, on the chessboard, how that's manifested in the matches. Because she's not just moving that rook or that knight. She is n- negotiating a life that has been thrown into turmoil for various reasons. You know, she's that when we first meet her, she's in um, a, 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 bo- a boarding school and she doesn't have any parents. Then later on, when she becomes an adolescent, she starts to grabble with drug addiction and alcohol addiction. And Annie Taylor Joy is really magnetic, and it's obviously ravishingly designed. It's set throughout the. I think it's the end of the 1950s onwards, isn't it? So it's got a real lovely art deco like look to it. It's really ravishingly designed. But one of the real... The, the score by um, Carlos Rafael Rivera recognises that despite the fact that, it, that the story is set at a very, very singular moment in film, in, uh, in our history, in the 1960s largely, the themes of the story are timeless. So it's about the idea of the Queen's Gambit is kind of like that that describes the chess move that the, the opening chess move from from a certain player and the beth is kind of like constantly making her first move into another stage of her life and these are themes that have occupied all of us like how do we navigate our own lives they are timeless they are archetypal so the use of the symphony orchestra to create this really sweeping kind of elegiac um sense of forward propulsion particularly in the main titles which i think are electrifying is is a really clever it's a really clever thing to do i think it creates an emotional directness that stands apart from the incidental period trappings that you see in the in the show and i've seen again i've seen a lot of weird comments online about um how you know it's it's not an organic score it was large parts of it or all of it were done with like samples and everything and i kind of think i mean again there's an interview on composer magazine that i write for 
uh, edited by Lauren Sunderland, who, you know, you can see that there is there is a shot of Rivera conducting the orchestra. He talks about the orchestra that he used. I think it might have been the Bratislavan orchestra. I might be misremembering that. But there was an orchestra involved. I mean, regardless of whether there might have been a little bit of digital touching up on certain, you know, on certain notes, on certain chord progression, I'm sure every single film score digitally augments its music in some way now because the technology is there. The point is, it sounds organic. Um, the themes are really good. There's another sub-theme like motif for um, the character of, of uh, Borgov, I think he's called, who's the Russian like nemesis that Beth will eventually come up against. Um, I mean, a large part of the score are actually... It's a lot about the restraint of it because a lot of the score isn't as thunderous as that main title would imply. A lot of it kind of uses fragments of that theme but builds often quite a melancholic sense of of sadness because this character goes through a lot of sadness in her life but it 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 earns the right to really go full ball with that main theme during the climactic sequence i won't give away what it is because if anyone's listening to this and they haven't seen the show they really ought to get the the impact of that really luscious symphony during the final movement of, of the show which i thought was really powerful i thought it really worked and it did the thing that I want film and soundtrack music to do is it's adding more meaning and more understanding to to, to my knowledge of the central character. I, I thought this was superb. Couldn't recommend it enough. Yeah, that's a great summation of it. Yeah, definitely. I, th- I thought the music really did stand out to me as really quite beautiful, and it's it's all there. It's all there on Spotify and all these all these kind of places. So yeah, it's I, I haven't listened to it in its entirety on its own, and I'm going to do that because I think I think it's really really great. So yeah, um, and I, to be fair, I, I, most people thought the Queen's Gambit was brilliant. Like, I, I, you you are far more in the majority in what you think of that show than I am. Really. So don't, don't worry <laughs> don't, about that. Don't, don't worry, <laughs> I, I, I've been in the minority on lots of things. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think I think Chariots of Fire is a load of old toots. So what do I know? So it's, it's like, <laughs> I've never seen that actually. I mean, you, don't don't, bo- don't bother. It's boring. <laughs> <laughs> don't yeah. bother watching it. Yeah. Um, Okay, my number three. I don't know if you've seen this one. This is one that came out on Christmas Eve last year. The Midnight Sky, uh, directed by George Clooney, starring Clooney, um, Felicity Jones, David Yellowo. Decent cast, uh, set in the relatively near future. Part post-apocalypse, part space-bound sort of movie. Um, after a climate disaster, George Clooney's alone. Um, looking after the the child of uh, a family who have have left this remote outpost, and then he finds out that a space mission is coming back to this world that's been ravaged, and you know how the how the two how how do these two stories collide? Scored by Alexandre Desplat, um, and and I, I found to be honest, I found the film quite tedious and slow and a bit dour, really. Didn't really do. George Clooney's funny because he's got he's you know on the face of it you know he's a modern Cary Grant, but then he makes these really sort of either quite melancholy or dour films quite mm. often, or films that are a bit odd in terms of the way they approach you know their style or their comedy. It's, it's a weird thing uh, in a way, like because you'd think he'd make these quite stylish, sweeping kind of films full of charisma, but. I don't know. I mean, it's, it wasn't my cup of tea, but the score I thought was great. I thought the score was beautiful. I mean, Desplat barely, very rarely puts a foot wrong, really, and he can he can turn his hand to almost anything. But in this, he really captures, I think, a lot of the, you know, both that sort of isolation and that emotion, and it's it's not one of those kind of scores like, like another Clooney, one of Clooney's better, more recent films like Gravity, where you know it's in it's in space. It's a different kind of score to that. It's much more grounded, I think, much more you know, tethered to character and emotion, but it still has that sort of otherworldly sense to it. I, I, th- I thought it was really nice. I, I, you've, have you checked these out? Uh, so I'm really glad that you summed up the plot there because I watched this on, it's a Netflix release, <laughs> I watched it over December and I thought it was so, so dull. I, I was yeah, genuinely yeah. quite staggered by how poor this film was and I thought, George Clooney, look, how has George Clooney made something this languorous and this this reliant on cliche and it's one of those awful movies whereby it, it's got such a kind of horribly kind of stretched out languorous pace to it and yet within that pace it will indulge in the most like fatuous hollywood cliches as well it's kind of like okay so you're taking a very long time to elaborate a dramatic point that i was able to predict about 30 minutes beforehand so <laughs> and it's just 
I yeah. thought it was really it look it looks amazing and clearly it does. I mean, it's, it's got George Clooney directing it. There's obviously money behind it, so it look it looks amazing. But I just thought it was it was awful. Um, and George, you're right. George Clooney is a funny one because George Clooney has got the matinee idol good looks, and there's a lot to like about George Clooney. I mean, he's, he's got solidly liberal credentials, and he, he's got a good sense of humour, and you think, you know, he has directed some interesting films. You think of Confessions of a Dangerous Mind or Good Night and Good Luck, and, but recently George Clooney has gone really off the boil with the films that he's been directing himself. He's made some really awful things like Suburbicon, which was also scored by Alexander Despair, and you think, like, what's happened? Like, wh- wh- where's his mojo gone? And just it's weird, but the, the, actually, the film was so boring that it actually negated any awareness to me on the part of the score. That's that's how boring I thought the film was. I didn't notice the score in the context of the film because the film was so dull, and mm. I, I had to separate the score out from the film and listen to it on its own. I was like, "Wow, this is a lot." Like, this is it's like I was discovering it for the first time, which yeah, I wasn't. Yeah, <laughs> it's really yeah, weird. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Isn't that strange? And I just yeah. thought that there's, there's a strained sense of sadness to it, which Desplat can do really well. You think of recent hits like The Shape of Water and things like that. There's a lovely melancholy to it. There, there's the track which everyone has cited, uh, people who follow film scores have cited, Iris in the Stars, which is got, I think that's the name of the track. It's got, it's got a lovely sense of longing. So longing is, is, is the term. Um, there are, unusually for Desplat, there are some quite aggressively like modernistic electronic textures in it, which he sometimes indulges in, but not normally this overtly. But it's, it's lovely to be able to separate a great score from a terrible movie and to be able to appreciate the nuances of what a composer can do. And as you said, Desplat is, is fun. He's been a little bit quiet in the last couple of years. I mean, he did Little Women last year, but I, um, I, I interviewed him for um the shape of and he was lovely and he was, he was very 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 french i mean that's ridiculously <laughs> french and um i mean i i asked I him yeah yeah it, it was literally almost like that i mean it was almost like um i i asked him like what were what were your um what were your musical influences well, there are, there are so many influences. Uh, it's like uh, the, the, the layers of my influence. You could say it's like a, it is like a milfoil. You know, those are French cakes and milfoil. There are lots of layers. And I built up these layers of influence over the years. I was like, that, that's a lovely analogy. Like, the use of like, the milfoil to suggest, <laughs> suggest yeah. the different layers of influence. He was wonderful. And he is a great composer. And I think if anyone comes out of the mess of the Midnight Sky unscathed, it is him. Let, let's mm. let's be honest about that. I think that's exactly it. I think yeah, again, this is going in my crap films, great scores <laughs> list. You know, it's doing well yeah. that list. I yeah. tell you, it's getting a few this yeah. year. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's a shame, it's a shame. Um, but definitely listen to the score. Right, number two, penultimate. Then what have you gone for? I tell you what, your choice here. I mean, the only reason I didn't pick it in my top ten is because I knew you would. So like, yeah, <laughs> let's let's reveal it. That's the advantage of going in twos, actually, because you know someone else yeah. is going to pick up the slack. Um, yeah, yeah it, it's uh, The Personal History of David Copperfield by Christopher Willis, which is just a, a, a beautiful score. And it's a film, Armando Iannucci's adaptation of, of David Copperfield by Charles Dickens and with Dev Patel in the central role. So we, I said with Enola Holmes that it, bro- it broke with the canonical Holmes stories. Uh, this breaks um, with um, the, 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 the traditional, like white anglicised tradition of Dickens by casting Dev Patel in the central role. But he is brilliant. He brings that real spirit and ebullient sense of spirit to the role. And the, the score is lovely because it's it's the, the the story as per the book and the film. It's about the the creation of an artistic personality. It's about the formation of a life, basically, as as implied by the title. And you see the birth of an artistic consciousness coming it coming into focus in front of you through David's life, various tragedies, triumphs, like losses, wins, gains, everything like that. And Inichi stitches it together really, really well. And you, what you need is a really sumptuous kind of rich score to really emphasise the emotional register of what David is going through each moment. You know, this is not a movie in which you know a, a score that was holding back would necessarily work because you really do need to feel that you are getting the sweep of an entire life in front of you and that I think that's what Christopher Willis 
does really well. There's there's overtones of Vaughan Williams in there, which is probably unsurprising because Vaughan Williams exerts a huge influence over pretty much every score that's set in and around Britain, that sense of pastoral um, beauty. There are moments of darkness in it as well. Um, it, it, it comes to a lovely, uh, really fulsome orchestral summation at the end during the climactic sequence in which David, there's a lovely figurative like visual expression. David is almost confronted with the younger version of himself as a child. And it does play into that sense of what what would you say to your younger self if you could be confronted with them? Like, what would you, you know, what what would you say? And the music really does get the the prof- profundity of that, I think, really well. It's, I mean, this film came out right at the very start of 2020. And I, I don't know if it quite got the attention that it deserved. The score certainly didn't because the score is, is sublime. But yeah i think in terms of doing what film and music should do which is go hand in hand together to deepen our understanding of the central character yeah it it does it magnificently well yeah i completely agree with that i think it's wonderful and the the film i caught the film later in the year i caught it uh on uh i rent we rented it and it's a lovely film really really good film um, very much enjoyed it, and so, but I think I think it did get a little bit lost in a way. I think it kind of it came out a bit later in the states, I think as well. So it kind of it didn't with everything else going on this year, it kind of slipped under the radar slightly, I think. But it, it's it's a, yeah, it's just a lovely package altogether. A really colourful, beautiful, you know, picture. Some fantastic performances. You know, it's funny. And then this gorgeous... I mean, Christopher Willis is, again, like doing some fantastic stuff. I mean, the death of Stalin was great as well. Yeah, did yeah. It was before th- this for Iannucci. I, I watched that with... with my, my I showed introduced that to my parents for the first time during lockdown number two. And mm. they were kind of like, oh, like the, the kind of contradictory response to it. But the music really stood out. That idea of the Soviet... Mm. The Soviet anthem, which amplifies the yeah. comedy and the horror of the situation, worked really well. It's really I good, yeah, yeah, really good. He's he's very talented. So, yeah, hopefully he'll keep this um, partnership with Iannucci going. Actually, because they uh, they they're doing some great things together. Um, so my number two, I've gone for one that I felt like deserved inclusion, even though the film doesn't deserve an inclusion on anyone's top ten. Really, this is the uh, the Robert Zemeckis remake of The Witches. Uh, which uh, is scored by Alan Silvestri. So this is a combination going back 35 years, you know, or more, all the way back to like Back to the Future. Um, and Silvestri's kind of, you know, been in the the eye lately in the last few years with the Avengers movies, you know, which is and he's done some great stuff for that. Um, and I thought I, I thought the score for the witches was what you'd almost expect, you know, for for a film like this. You know, it had all the sort of a lot of the you know Silvestri sort of trademarks. It had that sense of flair and that sense of magic, I think, to it, and that sense of, you know, true escapism in a way that the film doesn't. You know, I, I mean, I, I, maybe I'm being a bit unfair on the film because I keep thinking of the Nicholas Rogue film from 1990, the Angelica Houston starring film, which is creepy and weird and not by any means perfect, but really stays in your mind. That film, that adaptation of the Roald Dahl story, which, you, which you know, in in, in its he's quite sinister you know for a kid's story i mean i remember reading the witches when i was a kid and it and it stuck with me it's a really sinister story it's about witches who basically sort of you know eat children <laughs> yeah know, killing <laughs> children and stuff and it and and they and the film is okay but it doesn't do it doesn't do either the book or, or that original film i think any real justice it's all just mostly you know big performances and CGI really it doesn't really hold any kind of particular heart to it but I did like the score and I think the score I think anything where Silvestri is able to do this kind of stuff I think deserves to be up there really yes Silvestri is is one of the the kings of the kind of family fantasy comedy score really and he he is one of the last bastions of that 1980s uh, symphonic fantasy score. You think we've lost people like James Horner, Basil Polidorus, Jerry Goldsmith. I mean, Alan Silvestri is one of the last people left now. He's in his 70s, as I understand it. And he is, you know, in terms of the professionalism that he brings, not just his collaborations with Robert Zemeckis, as you said, which go back decades, but his other films as well. You know, he is one of those craftsmen that build the scores around themes there there are there are themes there are clear building blocks with which 
an audience is meant to create emotional identification you think of like you mentioned there the avengers theme which has now seemingly been finally semi semi-adapted into the marvel cinematic universe's overarching theme and we need to wait wait and see how that's going to be adapted as we go into marvel phase four and phase five i mean hopefully it will play a role somewhere in there but continue musical continuity in marvel films is something else we can go into on <laughs> obviously on another episode entirely yeah, but yeah. um I mean, to 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 put my cards on the table, I didn't. I haven't seen this version of The Witches. Obviously, it was going to go out theatrically in the UK. Then it went out on streaming because everything went went wrong with with you know with the virus and cinema shut again. I saw the trailer for it. I thought it looked awful. I thought the trailer looked really terrible. And I hold the Nick Rogue one in really high regard because that's the, the Nick Rogue one is genuinely malevolent and genuinely terrifying. And it's it's terrifying because of the practicality of the makeup of the Grand High Witch makeup is really visibly horrible. And it's the score by Stanley Myers, who was a who collaborated with Hans Zimmer when Hans Zimmer was first coming onto the scene in the 1980s, is really great for the for the 1991 as well. It's got a real whimsical sense of menace to it. So I thought, okay, I've not seen the film, but. I've kind of got an idea of what to expect from Alan Silvestri's score based on his past collaborations with Zemeckis, based on what I've seen in the trailer, based on the fact that he is a safe pair of hands. And yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really great score. It's, it does. There's nothing wrong with the score doing what you expect it to do. Sometimes, sometimes that is exactly what you need. And clearly for a, a, a movie like this, I mean, what you need is what Silvestri does, which is you have the portentousness the comic portentousness of the theme for the which is obviously in this case represented by Anne Hathaway but it's laced with just enough of a tongue-in-cheek sense of humor to obviously moderate the fact that otherwise this would be quite scary for young children so Sylvester has got that sense of awareness but there's a lovely kind of devilish waltz-like piece for a solo violin which reminded me to some extent of his theme for Death Becomes Her which I think is a brilliant score in a really funny film like that's another Zemeckis collaboration more people need to talk about that both the film and the score because i describe death becomes her sounds like bernard herman on nitrous oxide that's basically how i describe it and it's just like and there's a lot of that's that that sort of darkly comic spirit at work in the witches which yeah it, it uses a symphonic a traditional symphony to envelop you in a world of menace of magic of fun regardless of what the film's like and i haven't seen it I could build a mental picture in my mind of what's happening in the film based on how brilliantly Sylvester uses the uses the orchestra, but that that is a trademark of his, and I really hope that we're not going to completely lose that when people of his generation are no longer around. I mean, clearly we've talked about several composers throughout this particular episode who are picking up the baton to some extent. You think of people like Daniel Pemberton who you know can put can use themes they can obviously put put themes in service of quite an experimental score you think of things like spider-man into the spider-verse but yeah um in terms of Silvestri just doing what he's supposed to do which is to work with his director and get to the emotional essence of of the movie he does that in the witches brilliantly and and i I think i think to be honest you will you won't love the film Really, <laughs> I think. Well, <laughs> knowing you and knowing how what you think about the the original, you know, the ninety version of witches, which is you know the same as me, I think you'll watch it and go, eh, really, you know. So I, don't 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 go out your way. Wait wait till it's on stream and then you've got a spare hour and a half. You know, you put it on in the background because I think really that's the best thing for it. But the score, yeah, it does what it needs to. It's and it does it well for me so like yeah i think you're right in that you can probably imagine what the movie is from that score but the score again is better than the film so again it goes in the letterbox list this is doing well um <laughs> crap movies good scores yeah all right then you're number one now i have to say sean i never thought i would live to see the day that this composer was your number one of any year but here we are i mean you think you're surprised i'm i'm absolutely <laughs> stunned as well so for the first time in goodness knows how long i've got a Hans zimmer score at the very top of my top 10 best scores of the year list uh people might be able to divine what that is based on that it's it's wonder woman 1984 um and again again cards on the table i've not seen the film yet 
you know the film was meant to have come out theatrically in the uk obviously that didn't work it's, it's too complicated to go into the reasons why that didn't work the, the fact of the matter is it didn't come out theatrically in the uk it looked it, there was rather night we rather naively thought there was an outside chance it was going to then when we got into october november 2020 it's like yeah that's not going to happen is it so <laughs> it's just and it apparently it's now it's now gone out onto streaming in this country but not on hbo max because we don't have hbo max over here but they do have hbo max in america it's all it's all it's a mess it's It's such a mess it's such a mess and it's a real it's a real shame because this is you know this is the best score that Hans zimmer has come up with in a very very long time and it's a real shame that of all of all the films you know this is the film that hasn't come out theatrically this is the film that hasn't kind of got out (laughs) in a non-pandemic situation because more people would have heard this score you know, had the movie been released in a non-pandemic situation, um, I think it's wonderful, and it's, you know, I to 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 just set the record straight. Hans Zimmer is one of my favourite composers. I don't have anything against Hans Zimmer. He's done an extraordinary amount for film music. However, there is a risk with Hans Zimmer that his style, his sound, has in recent years fallen into self-parody it's not been helped by scores that he's done and it's not helped by the fact that it's perpetuated by the other composers who come up through his remote control studio and basically are asked by the producers and the directors to go oi we want something to sound like Hans Zimmer but we can't get Hans Zimmer to compose it that's not entirely Zimmer's fault I mean that is in large part the fault of the of the franchise producers and and the filmmakers but that very very Overcranked, overprocessed sound that mistakes noise for nuance is something I've had a real problem with, particularly in the last like fifteen to twenty years. Hans Zimmer has done very fine scores in the last fifteen to twenty years. I think you think of like the Sherlock Holmes scores, which I really, really like, precisely because they've got character to them. They are odd, they are offbeat, they're quirky. They're not just this kind of homogenous like blob of sound, which I think has been bolted so many of the superhero films that Hans Zimmer has done recently which is why it's wonderful that in Wonder Woman 1984 it comes roaring out of the traps with something called Joy of Joys a theme there is a theme in it (laughs) and it's, it's it's a wonderful one it's triumphant it's exuberant it's clearly meant to reinforce the appropriate enough the wonder of Gal Gadot's performance as Diana Prince as Wonder Woman she is obviously an unashamedly virtuous character. She is a force for good. You know, there's no dressing that up. And Zimmer's brief is obviously to get that in the form of the music. And he latches onto it brilliantly. And I think he exploits that theme really well throughout the, the score. He deconstructs it. He turns it around. There, there are other themes as well. There's romantic longing for the fact that um, Steve Trevor, Chris Pine's character, comes back from the dead, having not apparently died in World War One in the first Wonder Woman movie. There's real yearning in the score there's real interesting kind of analog squidgy electronic experimentation because obviously that befits the time period in which the film is set but also it's interesting because Zimmer himself rose to prominence during that period Zimmer worked with the Buggles on Video Killed the Radio Star which I think is something that a lot of people tend to forget Um, so and he did the theme for Going for Gold the BBC series so (laughs) this is kind of like you know people forget that that's still one of my (laughs) favourite Favorite for gold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, Amazing. It's, so Zimmer Zimmer started to come into his own around the mid nineteen eighties. So in a way, through the medium of this score, he is going back to revisit the period that set him on the path to becoming this extraordinary film composer. And I think this is a really, really wonderful score. It's it does the thing that superior scores are meant to do, which it, it doesn't dwell in murk and bombast for the sake of someone thinking that's going to make it more profound, which is a really stupid mentality. And God knows that's blighted so many superhero films recently. It's, it's just, it's fun. It's got, it's got a sense of fun to it. I imagine that the film follows the, I mean, I've read mixed things about the film. Uh, I haven't seen it, so I can't comment on that. What I can say is that the music is magnificent and it's the first Hans Zimmer score to top my my top 10 list in, in a very long time. <laughs> well, that is, that is really good. And I do agree that it's it's a it's a really really good score. I it, this probably would have been on my top ten. I I I've have I have seen the film. I think it's okay. 
like it, it's been savaged actually by a lot of people. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. I don't. I don't. You know, there's lots of people saying, "Oh, it's this, it's that, it's the other." Like, mm. It is basically a 1980 Superman movie, essentially. That, that's mm. what they've done. They've 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 made an old school 80s like, and and that's probably not that's, that's probably not a good phrase. Is it? <laughs> you know, it really. But what I mean by that is, it is the, it is that same sort of spectacle and color. You know, you've got Pedro Pascal playing basically Gene Hackman's Lex Luthor. You know, you've got. Chris Pine standing in for Lois. You know, it is very Clark and Lois, their whole relationship. You know, there's a lot there's a lot of that stuff. And it and it, it's a bit of a throwback in that way, but I think it's intentionally so. And I think I think that the score definitely plays into that. You know, that kind of light hearted it's it's much more of a light hearted film than the last one. You know, it's much more colourful and bright and very it, it taps into all that sort of eighties sort of Stranger Things aesthetic that's been in vogue since that show really took off. So you know, again, you can probably imagine the kind of film it is, Sean. Really, yeah. And and I, th- I think you'll find that when you watch it. Really, I think it's not. It doesn't have the heft of the first one, but I think the score really does help. I think I think it makes a big difference. So I can understand why it's your number one because I I, I I I really enjoyed it, and I think and it really does stand up on a solo listen completely. For, for me, it's it's a reminder that that Hans Zimmer. Hans Zimmer can really pull it out of the bag when it comes to really characterful scores. You know, we we get so used to Hans Zimmer's recent scores just drowning us in noise. And you know, it's a reminder that you know he started off by doing things like Rain Man and Driving Miss Daisy and Backdraft, and you know, and then there are other magnificent scores like Beyond Rangoon or The Thin Red Line. I'd call The Thin Red Line, I'd say, is probably his masterpiece. And it's just real yeah. melodic scores that are based on logical linear ideas that are very emotionally direct and that that is the Hans Zimmer that I like that's the side of Hans Zimmer that I like and I think this Wonder Woman 1984 the score for it gets back to that kind of Hans Zimmer it reconnects it it reconnects me to it and I can't say how joyous it is to be able to say that yeah no it is it is good and it's nice because you know I I I, I've maybe liked some more of the Hans Zimmer stuff of recent years than you have, but but I think yeah, it is not, and it bodes well for the two big hitters that we might well, <laughs> yeah, depending on what twenty twenty one's like, we might well get you know No Time to Die, Dune. I mean they're they're going to be fascinating to see now. So hopefully he's going to strike lucky with three cracking scores in a year. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. So my number one will surprise nobody because I've gone for Tenet <laughs> um, by. <laughs> Ludwig Jorensen, I, 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 you know, big that up when we last spoke. Again, we we've talked in depth about that in a previous episode. But uh, you know, and I, I, if not for this, I might have put his score for the Mandalorian season two on here on my top ten as well because he he's done great work on that show as well. I mean, the second season of the Mandalorian is great anyway. It's really really good, and the music again. He get he really does he really does have the opportunity at one point to really bring out John Williams stuff as well which is lovely for one scene in particular which i won't spoil but you probably know what it is because it's all over the internet yeah but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um tenet was great I, I i think you know the uh i really liked the, the movie you know it was it was my favorite movie of last year and it's i think that i loved the score to this i thought it was it was it was a film that zimmer would have done had he not been busy mate scoring dune but Jorensen does a great job here. I mean, it's 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 such a it's such a huge but sw- sweeping score with really strange rhythms in there, while also being a little bit James Bond at points. You know, I I just I just think it's great. I think it's great. And like I say, I, we, we talked more in depth about it in a previous episode. But uh, I've listened to this one, I think, more than a lot of the others this year. And it's been on on replay in the last few few months. So, yeah, this that that's what I'm going for. Well, it's f- from my point of view, it's interesting because bearing in mind I've just said that I've got I've gone through an extensive period of Hans Zimmer scores uh, that I haven't liked, many of which have been Christopher Nolan, who obviously direct, directed Tenet. And uh, it, there there was a question with Tenet. Okay, so for the, for the first time in a very long time, Nolan hasn't worked with Zimmer. He's worked with Ludwig Jorensen. And okay, so how much can Jorensen escape that all-consuming Zimmer sound, that style? Because I think Christopher Nolan is very, very singular 
in terms of right that's what i want my films to sound like and i've had real problems with with that with with nolan in the past again i think he he has been guilty he's a fan he's one of my favorite directors but in terms of the way he uses music he's been guilty of just turning the volume up to 11 while not encouraging the composer to do anything particularly interesting with it and that is an issue that i have and i thought when i came to tenet i was kind of okay Bearing that in mind, I also have to bear in mind that Jorensen himself is a real experimentalist. He's been very radical in his own right. You think of his collaborations with um, with Childish Gambino, which have been really interesting. He's also done... Obviously, he won the first ever Oscar for a comic book score with Black Panther, and that was a, that was a terrific score. And I thought that score melded the different, the experimental and the tribal and the symphonic facets together in, in a way that was really interesting. So I kind of came to Tenet thinking, okay, am I going to hear something that sounds like Ludwig Jorensen, or am I going to get a kind of classic like diet sort of watered down Hans Zimmer thing? And it's kind of, I think it's kind of a mixture of both. I think the score is functionally effective, which I think is probably the best thing you could say about any of the music in, in Nolan's movies, really. It it does it does the job that I mean that there is a sense of propulsion to it. Um and as anyone who's seen the film knows, it's it it, it doesn't hang around and it doesn't explain itself to people. Yeah. Um you know, there is this just forward thrust on it which is combined with a very, very aggressive sound design that's been, you know, knocked from pillar to post, deservedly so, because I, I saw it three times and I was still struggling to understand what they were saying to each other on, on, the, on the third viewing. And it's a very complicated thing with Nolan because he doesn't like, apparently he doesn't like actors doing ADR, additional dialogue recording. He likes dialogue to be captured raw on the set, which makes things very difficult to listen to when it's eventually mixed down into the sound. And then you throw his love of a, of a loud film score into that and it makes it more <laughs> problematic um yeah. i think that there are bits of tenet that are of the score that are genuinely brilliant the foils track for the much maligned catamaran sequence is really good because it ditches a lot of the percussion there is this kind of vangelis style electronic thrumming propulsion so i thought if more of the score had sounded like that it might have been more interesting as it as it is the harmonics of it are so often, as is so often the case in Nolan scores, the harmonics, the emphasis on percussion for the sake of percussion creates this kind of like bludgeoning impact. And you don't want to be bludgeoned. You want the score to provoke, to stimulate. You don't want it to batter you about the head. But unfortunately, that is, seems to be what Christopher Nolan likes. And it's 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 a bit it's a bit of a shame because I think that Jorensen has done more interesting things like that before. It's not a terrible score. I think it's quite a decent score. It's not the best thing that he's done, but it doesn't exactly dissuade me from the music doesn't dissuade me from the fact that what we've basically got here is a very very cheesy as i said in our previous episode 1960s style james bond movie with kenneth brenner doing the impression of evil kermit i am going to <laughs> i will cut balls off and stuff them down your throat would you like me to yeah. do that and it's kind of like, oh blimey like really like it's just like it's like you know do do i laugh do i cringe do i take it seriously like what 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 am i meant to do like, yeah 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 90s bond villain that's what he is <laughs> yeah i mean not even 90s bond villain i mean 60s bond villain I mean, if he turned yeah. up with an with an eye patch it wouldn't have been out of place like it would it would it would have made absolute sense like or yeah. or a scar put, over his eye like just put, um put john, john david washington on a uh on a bed stick a laser yeah like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're good. yeah you're really good at done that so you'll yeah. see the problem um, with the balls his balls will soon be vaporized by laser that is coming up your genital area now but you'll tell me what i do with the time travel thing and it's kind of oh, it's, it's literally like that it's literally like you know it is i know I, we, we, i rewatched it recently and and it was it, it lost a little bit of the something on the small screen i, I won't lie it wasn't quite as as enveloping as it was when I saw it in a cinema, but I still enjoyed it a lot. And I and but it is it is at points silly. But I think I think the music is is good. I really I really I really do like a lot of what he does on this. And it will be interesting to see if Nolan goes back to Zimmer for his next project, or he sticks with Jorensen, or he alternates between the two. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But um, but yeah, that was my that was my number one. And that's it. We've 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 put together a, a decent list there. I think of, of things for people to go and listen to, of uh, of, of scores. 
that was quite an epic journey that that was that was an epic journey through a whole year and what a year that was it's like unlike any other year in living memory we've managed to kind of rescue things from it I'm quite proud of that (laughs) yeah me too I know more than we might have thought and let's just hope that we don't have to do the same thing at the at the start of 2022 (laughs) don't tempt fate seriously (laughs) yeah I know Everybody's banging on 2021 being the year that things start to get back to normal. And I think it will be a bit of a, um, a bit of an all over the place year full of stops and starts. And, and I, I think realistically, it's going to be a little bit of the same for yeah. the majority of it, really. Um, but hopefully with a bit more hope in tow with very, in various different ways. And hopefully towards the end of the year, maybe we can, we can start getting back into the cinemas. You know, that's, that might be good, but who knows? We will see, but it, it def- we've definitely managed to find gems within what, what is a, will go down as a terrible year, you know, in general and a year that everyone will just want to forget. But yeah, this is music not to forget. So yeah, uh, it, it's, it's been fun picking all of these out. And we haven't quite figured out what we're doing with the podcast yet, have we, in 2021? We don't really, we haven't really talked about when we're going to be back, what we're going to do, how often or anything like that. But we'll we'll be back, won't we, Sean, in the next, you know, few weeks and months or whatever to talk about film music. It, it might be more of an ad hoc thing, mightn't it? Because let's face it, we're in an ad hoc situation with theatrical yeah. and, and also streaming distribution. Obviously, Netflix really put out their slate, didn't they, a few days ago? And Netflix are, are really aggressively hammering the market now. But I suppose we, we really need to see what the theatrical slate is going to be. Because until the moment that that gets fixed and that gets back to some kind of consistent pattern, it's really hard to try and predict. It's hard for us to try and get into a pattern of talking about film music regularly as attached to each of the individual films. So, yeah, I mean... I mean, it's uh, my 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 money would be on the back half of the year post post June. I reckon the back half of the year is when you know. Well, we'll be, we we could potentially talk about some stuff before then, but I think back half of the year is when things are potentially going to get start to get more consistent in terms of cinemas reopening and and things like that. I'm I'm hedging my bets at the moment. I'm trying not to trying not to think get too optimistic no. about things happening too early. We can't predict anything you know really as as this year last 12 months has proven so we hopefully will come back and talk a bit you know every now and then about some stuff you know we'll we'll we'll, fig- we'll figure it out we'll we'll try and we'll try and come back semi regularly but then yeah maybe towards the end of the year we can get back into a bit more of a pattern and, and do a few more episodes so we'll keep you posted those listeners we do have people who are tuning in so we appreciate it thank you Sean why, where can people find you if they're waiting for a bit more between the notes in the meantime so um you can find me on uh to, I, I write for a variety of outlets my main bread and butter is uh cineworlds.co.uk forward slash blog you can find me on there i'm also now doing bits for composer magazine i've cited them a few times throughout this recording uh also uh film score monthly um i i am excitingly now writing my first book uh, which is really, yeah. <laughs> which is a really big joke. That's a, that's a good thing that came out of 2020 because I don't I don't think I would have been in the mindset to kind of <laughs> take take a breath and get that up and running. So yeah, so I'm I'm kind of here and there, all all over the place. So just just give give me a if if people are so inclined, just give me an online search, give me a Google search. <laughs> so I'm sure yeah. stuff will come up. And we'll we'll your book has relation to what we do on the on this. So we'll we'll talk more about that as time goes on, won't we? Because it's very exciting what you're going to be doing there. So yeah, stay tuned for that, guys. But yeah, um, you can find me at AJ Black Writer on Twitter at my uh, website culturalconversation.co.uk. Uh, for everything I'm up to really so check me out should you wish but yeah um, thanks for tuning in hopefully as I say we'll have a Spotify playlist we'll put things on there for you to listen to um, based on what we've talked about but uh, yeah we hope until we see you next time that, that you stay safe and well and you have a good start to 2021 thank you for joining us for another episode remember we're part of the We Made This Podcast Network and the music of 2020 is not all we're discussing right now so we'll give you a little taste of what else you might have missed on the network in a minute But until then, we hope you enjoy the film music we've discussed and we will see you next time discussing the music of film and TV between the notes. Elsewhere on We Made This. The time is now. A millennium podcast. Uh, But no, I mean, I I, I will say that Rise of the Machines um, also kind of like 
argues against uh, Terminator 2 of course back to where, where it was like Rise of the Machines like then goes maybe they're both right and shrugs its shoulders it's like maybe you can prevent Judgment Day but only for a little while and it's like that's not an argument pick a side pick a lane you can either change the past or you can't none of this wishy-washy you can change it sometimes but you can't really change it so it all balances out yeah no pick a pick a damn side <laughs> Don't say the C word. On the back of my right arm, I have a tattoo of Phil Collins. It's, it's, <laughs> it's the front cover of No Jacket Required. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this was the one that I expected you to pick, I'll be honest with you. Because yeah. it is my favourite of your tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a tattoo I got as a joke. A lot of my tattoos that I've got, a lot of well, a lot of everything that I do <laughs> is because it's a joke or if, if I think something's funny. We buy records. Eric Clapton and Van Morrison have released an anti-lockdown song. How, how do you think about this? Where does this sit on the shitometer? I think it redefines the shitometer. Right. I just, you know, I mean, so I think it's raising money for musicians who are affected by the lockdown and the lack of gigs, etc., mm-hmm. which is a good thing. Yep. But then you see Van Morrison and Eric Clapton, a bad thing. So, right. do you know what I mean? I mean, I love, I yeah. love Van Morrison's music. I don't particularly like Eric Clapton's music. I quite like the 60s stuff. But, I, you know, they're a couple of whinging old men, aren't they? Old man babies complaining that they can't go and lick whoever they want. Mm. I know. But that's what they're singing about, I think. I haven't I haven't checked that. I assume that the lyrics are about... You can take it as read that I haven't heard it. <laughs> it's not likely to have a banging donk on it, is it? It's unlikely to have a banging donk. Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This Podcast Network. Between the Notes is produced and edited by Tony Black, who hosts alongside Sean Wilson. You can find Tony on Twitter at AJBlackWriter and Sean on Twitter at SeanO22. You can find Between the Notes on Twitter at BTW underscore notes, on iTunes, your podcast app of choice, on Spotify, Stitcher and on Spreaker, where the show is part of the We Made This Podcast Network. For more podcasts all about TV, film, books, music and popular culture in general, you can find We Made This on Facebook and on Twitter at We Made This Pod. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.